there's a chance peace will come in your life, please buy one. Sings the iconic voice of Melanie Safka. We hear at Solutions of Balance, as well as our guest today, Dr. David Cochran, also believe there's a chance peace will come in all of our lives. Welcome, friends. We are Forward Radio, WFMPLP 106.5 FM. And you're listening to Solutions to Violence, a program sponsored by Forward Radio. I'm Jamie McMillan here with co-host Jim Johnson. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of our guests and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by sending an email to solutions to violence 18 at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Today, it's our pleasure to have our guest, Dr. David Cochran. David Cochran grew up in Lubbock, Texas. His BA is from Drew University in New Jersey, and his MA and PhD are from University of Maryland. He and his wife, Kristen, have two sons. David pursues hobbies in architecture, whiskey, and walking, all in moderation. Professor Cochran has taught in the politics program at Loras College in Dubuque, Iowa, since 1996, offering a range of courses primarily in the areas of political thought and American politics. His primary teaching and research areas are religion, race, and ethnicity in American politics, political thought, war and peace, and Irish studies. In addition to a wide array of articles, he has published five books, and most recently, Catholic Realism and the Abolition of War, with his colleague John Waldemir, published The Catholic Church in Ireland Today. In addition to teaching, Professor Cochran is the co-editor of the Peace and Justice Minor and director of the Archbishop Gutera Center for Catholic Intellectual and Spiritual Life. Welcome back, Dr. Cochran, to Solutions to Violence. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me back. David, now that we've briefed our listeners with a, a biography, would you like to fill in the blanks? What, what do you feel are important life experiences that, that brought you to your current position as professor of politics at Lawrence College, author achievement, and other life learning experiences? Um, well, I can't add a whole lot. My life, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, has been fairly uh, boring, I suppose, or safe, I suppose, another way to put it. I'll just add that when I figured out that I could get paid to talk about and read and write about things that I love to think about and talk about anyway, and I could get paid to do so to a group of students who couldn't leave till I told them to, then I think I found my calling. David Cochran, it's been a little over a year since we have talked. So we have a lot to share about the events of this extraordinary past 12 months. We want to explore how those experiences have influenced and at times challenged some of our conceptions and assumptions. Knowing some of our listeners may not have been with us for our first interview with you, David, we want to encourage them to hear the interview. We will explain to our audience how to access the David Cochran interview at the end of the program today. So with this caveat, feel free to cover some of the same information from your first interview when you think it's necessary. Great. I certainly will. I think uh, maybe as our conversation unfolds, I'll be able to um, cover some of the same ground we did last time with some of my previous publications. Yeah, well, David, you, uh, we mentioned uh, earlier that you're author of the, the book, Catholic Realism and the Abolition of War. Your book affirms the vision and practice of active nonviolence at the heart of the Catholic Church. The Reverend Emmanuel Captain Goal of Notre Dame has identified nonviolence as a spirituality. It is to, to say nonviolence is an affirmation that is grounded in a journey with God. How do you see nonviolence as a vision and practice and, and spirituality? Yeah, that's a good question. I think for me, I'm most used or most comfortable 
seeing nonviolence as a practice. It's not that I certainly disagree with it being a spirituality. I'm just, just not especially a spiritual person, I guess. So yeah, among adherents to nonviolence, there's some who are dedicated to it sort of as an ethical, moral idea, some more of a spiritual calling, like a sense of discipleship to their particular way of life or, or God. Some is just a purely tactical kind of um, more effective way to achieve social change. I've always sort of been more on the the moral ethical idea that aside from anyone's belief in any religious idea, that it just is a, a more moral tool, a more moral approach to solving problems, especially the the ethical problems that violence and war in particular uh, present. So I have a lot of respect for those who see nonviolence as a kind of a spiritual calling, part of their own spirituality or, or deep religious practice. Um, it hasn't been, it doesn't resonate with me uh, that much, but that's where I think nonviolent movements get a lot of their support and their, their power from those who have a deep spiritual connection to the practice of nonviolence. 2021 has been the second year for the Catholic Nonviolence Day of Action. This year, it began 21st of September and ended at the 2nd of October. Nonviolence Day of Action is designed to think about, pray, and act for peace and nonviolence. It's a time to be in solidarity with Pax Christi, members and and partners around the world. Tell us about Pax Christi and, and the International Day of Nonviolence and the significance of the observation Sure. Well, the Catholic tradition, like many religious traditions and other traditions, is blessed by having a, a network of, of peace-oriented groups who have long worked um, on a range of issues related to peace and justice. Pax Christi is kind of an umbrella group. They've been around a long time, uh, very much focused on peace-building, peacemaking, an international focus on reducing war. And they help sponsor the Catholic Nonviolent Initiative, which is a, a more recent group that really drills down and tries to focus on advocating for nonviolence within the Catholic tradition, within Catholic teaching. I and mean, that includes actual attention to the practice of nonviolence. So they and some other groups, uh, Pache Bene is another uh, Christian peacemaking group, have tried to sort of bring attention to nonviolence with these sort of days of nonviolence that kind of fall really following the International Day of Peace, September 21st, which the United Nations has declared as the International Day of Peace. Kind of the two weeks after that, really trying to draw more attention to nonviolence and the the power and creativity uh, that it can bring to social change. Dr. David Cochran, Pax Christi now sponsors Catholic Nonviolence Days of Peace, as you pointed out. Reverend Kettigold from Notre Dame identifies nonviolence as a spirituality. Pope Francis is more vocal in terms of his support of peaceful resolution than previous popes. But historically, Catholic clergy and Catholic laity have supported war and at times opposed war. In his book, Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, the historian Andrew Preston points out that Christian churches, mostly in southern United States, generally support the military and U.S. military intervention. Preston explains that conservative Christian religion wield an enormous amount of power, political power, with a back full of books authored by historians like Dwayne Cady, Mark Kurlansky, Charles Benditti. I spent an hour with a local Catholic priest while the Catholic Church and explained why the Catholic Church should oppose and support peace resolutions. The priest listened carefully and then stated that I was right. Then he added that if he spent too much time preaching the social gospel, 
he would lose half of his congregation. And he could not literally afford to lose the revenue that membership provided. The priest's position explains why the Southern Christian churches much more about personal salvation and piety and little about social justice. Is it possible for the Catholic Church, especially those in the South, to spend significant time preaching peace and justice without losing significant membership? Will the fear of losing membership and revenue prevent Christian and Catholic churches from openly opposing war? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you put your uh, your finger on a real dilemma that many religious bodies, um, including maybe in particularly the Catholic Church, has when the their doctrines conflict with the um, the preferences or, or positions that uh, the flock holds, right? And so there's always been this dilemma. Now, as part of the larger Christian tradition, the gospel, of course, has an answer to that. Preach the word no matter what, <laughs> right? So, you know, and the priest, I'm sure, knows this, who you referenced. But but there are the practical considerations of, you, you know, as soon as you start preaching on anything vaguely political, half the people in the church are going to tune you out. The other half will nod their heads. And Catholic congregations are particularly, more so than Protestant congregations, are, are more divided politically. Normally, you're going to have people on all sides in the pews, just the way Catholic churches are organized. But yeah, I mean, I think the church's mission is to is to push, you know, we don't, is, is to push parishioners congregants to be more faithful, to face uncomfortable truths. And one of those is that the church is much more uh, opposed to warfare than the typical American citizen. That's the dilemma of being a, a peace-focused church in a, in a global military superpower is there's going to be that shift. So it's a lot harder for Americans to hear church teaching on war and peace and the arms trade and things like that than it is, say, for you know, Catholics in, in parts of Africa or Latin America. There is a study guide I think you're familiar with. It's uh, Advancing Nonviolence and Just Peace in the Church and the World. It's prepared by members of the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative Education Committee. Uh, there is a reference to church in the study guide title. Would you give us a sense of how this guide will help those of us interested in, in advancing nonviolence and a, and a just peace? Yeah, so the, the motivation for the guide was by the Catholic Nonviolence Initiative. And so Part of its focus was kind of an inside baseball kind of idea is trying to push the Catholic Church specifically, specifically the Vatican, to emphasize nonviolence more. It had been emphasizing nonviolence and its critique of war, you know, more and more over the last few decades and wanting to keep that momentum going and, and change, um, develop church teaching in such a way that ultimately will reject the very idea of a just war and instead um, adopt a just peace framework. Uh, peacemaking and nonviolence. So part of it was aimed really at a very specific audience, people in the Vatican trying to pave the way for that development. But then the secondary audience would be the wider Catholic community. This is part of the Catholic tradition. This should be a, a, a more developed part of it. And then thirdly, people beyond the Catholic community, anyone interested in nonviolence and peace, uh, because most, a lot of Catholic teaching is is couched not in explicitly religious language, but in what we call natural law, just general moral principles of human dignity, solidarity, sustainability, which you don't have to be Catholic, obviously, to uh, uh, to believe in. So it would be helpful for those outside the Catholic Church. Yeah, there's some great ideas about 
the the what's happening around the world with grassroots nonviolence and peacemaking and um, how to sort of transform conflicts in creative ways. So David Cochran, in your book, Catholic Realism and the Evolution of War in 2014, you asked the question, quote, is war an inevitable and inescapable reality of the human condition? End quote. The question seems as if it has an inescapable conclusion. How do you answer that question? Um, the abolition of war in my title, I think, is a clue that um, I don't think it's an, an inevitable and inescapable reality of the human condition. Um, I don't think I, I tend to agree with Margaret Mead, the great anthropologist who said war is an invention. It's not something that's biologically in our nature. It's not something that's inevitable. Like other social practices, it's something we invented. And if we invented it, we can get rid of it. We can set it aside. Uh, it doesn't make it easy or even probable, but we're not condemned, I think, to always have war as a, as a practice. Just like as in the book, I develop chapters on other social practices, such as chattel slavery or dueling, trials by ordeal and combat, lynching, things like this, where we've either abolished them or, or transformed them in such ways that they're not an accepted dominant part of everyday life anymore. And I think war can be one of those practices that we, we can set aside as, a, as humanity. David Cochran, recently on our program, uh, Solutions to Balance, uh, we featured Mary Wayne Ashford, who is on the board of directors of Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, and Kathy Kelly, a founding member of the Pacifist Organization, Voices for Creative Nonviolence, are shaking their head, yes. Mm -hmm. They explained that current civil war and violence is on the rise, and they're right. We can't argue with that. However, Steven Pinker, author of Better Angels of Our Nature, documents the fact that worldwide, since the end of the Middle Ages, war and violence has slowly but steadily declined. If you believe the research documented by Pinker and his mathematician, Lewis Richardson, violence is declining and war is not inevitable, inescapable, or an inescapable reality of the human condition. So Pinker is right. If war is on the decline, then humans have every reason to conclude to continue searching for peaceful resolutions to conflict, right? Definitely. And there's um, obviously a lot of empirical debate with the, the, the Pinker thesis with the decline of war. And there's long-term and short-term trends. So both Kathy Kelly, who um, we were blessed to have as our International Day of Peace speaker here at Loris College in Dubuque a year ago, just over a year ago, is right about the, the scourge of civil war and how it has worsened, say, over the last decade, that there's, especially places like Syria, uh, there has been an increase in civil war. But within that, I think Pinker, the evidence Pinker presents is also pretty compelling that worldwide um, war has declined in the long term. And especially significant is the decline of interstate war, state wars between states, which historically accounted for the most casualties, the most destructive wars. That hasn't gone away completely, but it's really dramatically shrunk. So we just don't have that many wars between two or more countries against each other. Instead, most of the armed conflicts in the world today are civil wars, which are terrible for the countries that endure them and can be quite bloody, as Syria illustrates, but tend not to have the same levels of casualties as all-out war between separate countries. Um, and they are fortunately confined to certain parts of the world. So many parts of the world are, for all intents and purposes, war-free. They have lots of other problems, but I don't think there's any active armed conflicts, for example, in the Western Hemisphere right now. Um, now that the Colombian Civil War is stopped, hopefully uh, forever, but at least for now. So really, aside from parts of Central Africa, the Middle East, 
um, anyone with the misfortune to be bordering Russia. Um, there's just not a lot of active armed conflicts, which isn't to say these ones that are still happening aren't a problem, but those are the ones we need to focus all our attention on, on trying to reduce and, and hopefully zero out at some point. Yeah. Looking at the Catholic Church a little further, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops recently issued their pastoral message titled Living with Faith and Hope After September 11. Quote from it, in response to attacks on innocent civilians, we must be sure that we do not violate the norms of civilian immunity and proportionality. Your response to this pastoral message was this. The statement was a good representation of the contemporary Catholic approach to questions of war and peace. Out of this observation, this question came, should church teaching still allow for morally permissible uses of military force in certain situations? Or should it entirely phase out this remaining space allowing for just war, the theory, just war? How do you answer those questions? I think this is drawn from an article that I uh, recently wrote for America Magazine, which is a Catholic Jesuit-sponsored magazine, anniversary of 9-11, the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And yeah, I sort of make an argument for why the just war should no longer be part of Catholic teaching. And I use the bishop's statement after 9-11 as kind of a framing device. Briefly, the Catholic Church for many, many centuries used the just war tradition to basically say not all war is moral, but sometimes war can be. And it was pretty permissive. It was seen as a kind of a normal part of how countries behaved. In the 20th century, Catholic teaching became much stricter on just war. It didn't go away, but it became much more of an exception. Only in extraordinary circumstances should war be allowed. And it was supplanted by this huge emphasis on peacemaking, development, economic justice, human rights, nonviolence, reducing the the roots of war, and ultimately trying to abolish war. So the question in Catholic circles now is whether that remaining space for just war theory, a just war can be be permissible in certain very narrow circumstances, whether it should be allowed or not, or zeroed out entirely. And I argued that um, it should be zeroed out mainly because, so one of the, often the objections to keeping a just war window in church teaching is it, it's too permissive. It just allows us to go to war and that's immoral. And I agree with that, but I also think that it's unrealistic uh, in the sense that War is just not a very good tool for achieving what people think it will achieve. Protecting human rights, stopping aggression, removing dictators, nonviolence and other alternatives have a much better track record when it comes to defending human rights, resisting aggression, transforming injustice, stopping atrocities. So I don't think there's a role for the just war framework in Catholic teaching or anywhere for that matter, just because it's not effective. It doesn't do what people think it should. We need to, some people say we need to keep war around to do X, Y, and Z. And the evidence is that war does not do X, Y, and Z. So it, it's a, a flawed tool that we should get rid of, and there's better options. So, Dr. Cochran, let's explore that just war theory a little further. Mark Berlansky, in his book, Nonviolence, A History of a Dangerous Idea, explains that most of the ancient Roman Christians were pacifists. Right. The pa- their pacifist beliefs were based on the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus said to the multitudes, it is written, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say it's unto you, love thy neighbor as thyself, turn the other cheek, love thy enemy. 
The eighth beatitude states, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. These two biblical proclamations explain why the majority of the ancient Roman Christians were pacifists. The ancient Roman Christians remained pacifists from the time of the ascension of Jesus in 339 AD until the Roman general Constantine convinced the Christian leadership to join his army in his successful attempt to overthrow the Roman emperor Maximus. The ancient Roman Christians gave up their pacifist philosophy in exchange for legal recognition and Constantine's promise to build Christian churches. Kurlansky explains that the decision on the part of the ancient Christians to join Constantine's created an efficacious relationship between the state and the church. The research published by Andrew Preston's book, Sword of the Spirit, Shield of Faith, indicates that the state and the Christian church still collaborate, as evidenced by the fact that Southern Christian churches support war waged by the U.S. military. The term Jusho Bello, as you know, means St. Augustine's attempt to justify war and limit war to, to combat. Therefore, I have two questions. First, is the Catholic Church correct when it justifies war using the term Jus Bello principle and in the light of the Sermon on the Mount and the history of the ancient Roman Christians? Second, should the Catholic Church hierarchy publicly oppose U.S. government if the hierarchy decides that a war waged by the American military is unjust? And if so, why hasn't the Catholic Church already taken a position in opposition to war waged by the American military? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll take your first question first. Um, I I think that yes, the 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 church is to the extent that the church still endorses just war framework, that is wrong. And in fact, the church I think is in a in a gray area where it it may have already completely gotten rid of the just war framework. So, like I said, for many years that was the framework. The church was very comfortable with secular power and with the use of, of warfare as part of what countries just did. But I think the, the earliest Christians, as you mentioned, for the first 300 years before Constantine's fam uh, famous dream and, and the battle that he won after that dream, I think they were on the right track, that uh, it's very hard to square the gospel with, with the use of warfare. Um, and so I think the Catholic tradition has been, especially since it's given up secular power. I like to remind my students for, for centuries, the church, Catholic church had its own army, the papal states. It, it was a secular power. Um, it fought wars itself. Um, but since it's given up that kind of um, territorial power, it's become much more critical of war. And in Pope Francis's most recent encyclical, he seems to, it's somewhat ambiguous, but he seems to shut the door on just war, saying it's something we no longer teach and advocating instead just violence. So I think an argument can be made the church has given up just war, uh, just as it gave up capital punishment. It used to be very comfortable with capital punishment by the state. Then it became more critical of it, gradually narrowing, 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 narrowing the choice. And now it's said it never is right. It's essentially abolitionist pacifist when it comes to capital punishment. So I think something similar is happening with the church. The, the challenge, of course, is, yeah, when it comes to now, rather than cooperating with state power, standing up to state power, the Vatican has been quite critical of American military power over the last 25 years. 
the development of atomic weapons, the arms trade, the war in Iraq, even the war in Afghanistan to some extent. Catholic bishops in the United States, again, it's harder. There's more tensions when it's your own country. They have been critical. They, they came out pretty clearly against the invasion of Iraq in 2003, for example, and were ignored, of course, just like the Pope was ignored. So yeah, to some extent, I think the problem is twofold. One, they are too timid, the American bishops, when it comes to condemning American militarism. Uh, and two, when they do do it, their own flock, rank and file Catholics tend to ignore them. And certainly the government tends to ignore them. Just like last week, Missouri went ahead and executed a prisoner, even though the personal intervention of the Pope and bishops tried to persuade the governor to grant a pardon. But um, so yeah, they're, they're too timid to condemn as they should, but even when they do, they tend not to have any effect. You're probably uh, familiar with John Shelby Spong, Episcopal priest of mm -hmm. New York, until he retired. He is widely recognized for his unorthodox views on religion. He points to Copernicus, Galileo, Darwin, and others as debunking myths of the Bible. Myths like the three layers of the universe, thought in biblical times as hell beneath the earth, and all living things can, can abide if they don't, uh, if they're not saved, or heaven where God looks down on us. Another example, of course, is the Pope uh, has recently conceded that the same-sex marriage is not prohibited by the church, not yet recognized as accepted, but not prohibited. In what other ways would you say the church has released itself from certain documents that, that impacts the issues of today? You've mentioned some already it's in terms of war. What about racial pluralism or health care? Yeah, I think like any religious tradition that's been around, you know, any length of time, uh, the Catholic tradition changes and evolves. I mean, it often revolves. It's kind of an interesting, I think, actually, religion in general is an interesting relationship with sort of general social values, because in many ways, religion reflects those values, right? Uh, religion changes as society changes, but it also can be a kind of prophetic challenge to those values, questioning them. So I think the Catholic tradition has changed over 2000 years uh, in many ways. One of the dilemmas, at least for the Catholic Church, is that it puts a big emphasis on its being the authoritative teaching. So the Vatican and the church leadership kind of has this idea of we're the authoritative teaching for what Catholics believe. And so when you change, it raises the issue of, well, if you were wrong before, are you wrong now? It's a little like the Supreme Court. Because they have the ability to interpret the Constitution, they don't like to come out and say, oh, by the way, we were wrong. They like to sort of gradually develop and and add footnotes and kind of change teaching without necessarily coming out and saying we've done so. So yeah, when the, when the Catholic Church changes, and it certainly does, it tends to do so gradually and somewhat underhandedly, I would say, in the sense that it, it isn't always as upfront about. So when it changed on slavery, for example, used to slavery was fine under natural law. Now it's inherently evil. Religious liberty in the 19th century was a heresy. Now religious liberty is a, an important doctrine that the church celebrates. Capital punishment used to be fine. Now it no longer is. Uh, usury used to be a sin. Uh, loaning money for credit used to be a sin. And now, of course, the church has investments where they earn interest on, on money in order to fund building projects. So yeah, the church has changed a lot, oftentimes, I think, for the better. And it's currently changing when it comes to issues of certainly of war and peace that we've been talking about. It's become much more of an advocate for peace and a, and a, a, a very strong proponent for peace and con a condemner of war. It has, because it's become much more of a global church and its leadership is shifting to the global south, it's, I think it's also become much more aware of, of racial and ethnic diversity. And of course, like all of society, it has 
meanings of sexuality and gender roles change. It's putting pressure on the church too. That's probably the area where it's seemed most resistance to resistance so far to change. But even there, the change has has come and, and will continue, I suspect. Well, given those points you're making, what does that mean or should it mean to the average believer in biblical teachings? Mm-hmm. I think, I think, I mean, I find it reassuring. So I think the church is often afraid, like the Supreme Court, that if it says we were wrong about something in the past, then people won't trust them today. But I, I have much more faith in an institution that can admit its mistakes and can say we're growing and developing and learning, right? So I think the fact that the Catholic tradition changes, like pretty much any tradition, religious, cultural, uh, means that it's it's living uh, and that it doesn't always make the right choices, but that means it's it's human, right? Um, so I think the believer should take, take solace in the fact that religion grapples with some enormously difficult questions for which there are no clear answers, and that change and challenge and uncertainty is part of that process. You know, there's, there's still that question, though, whether the church or the Vatican assumes or says that it's perfect. Uh, and what do you say to a, a believer who says, mm, uh, what's going on here? Yeah, there is the, the doctrine of um, papal infallibility, which doesn't mean the Pope's always right about everything. It just means that the Pope has the final word on what official church teaching is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but obviously, Popes make mistakes. Cardinals make mistakes. We all make mistakes. We're all human. And so it wouldn't be true to the, the Christian tradition to assert a lack of freedom from sin or, or human shortcomings. That's the whole basis of the religion, right? So yeah, I think a believer should... If a believer needs certainty that their religious leaders are never wrong, then I think they they have to work on their source of their belief, because that's just not the way it is. Yeah, looking at the just war theory, just a, a moment more, author Samuel Moen suggests that uh, what seems to be a variation on Augustine's just war theory, his term is humane war. His definition of humane war is one that, that has become a U.S. standard, United States standard for strategic strike attacks, making war more legal and sanitized. More lawyers are uh, part of the military than ever, making it hidden from uh, constant media coverage out of direct consciousness of Americans and perhaps other folks in the world, and thus war so it can continue relatively unnoted, unabated, and forever, thus the lawyers counseling. How would you compare Moyen's idea of a humane war? to the Augustine and Catholic bishops concept of, of just war? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'll preface my answer by saying um, I haven't read the book yet in, in its entirety. It's on my list to read. It, it just came out. It looks really, really interesting. I've read yeah. a couple of excerpts and some reviews. Yeah, it just, just came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but of course, I'm a college professor, so not having read a book is never a reason to not talk about it. Uh, so <laughs> I'll say a few things. Yeah, and in some sense, he's right. There has been. So the one of the big changes in Catholic just war tradition is much more of a focus on civilian casualties. It used to be understood in just war that you shouldn't intentionally kill civilians, but collateral damage, they're going to die anyway. You can't really fight a war without killing civilians. The contemporary Catholicism has become much more concerned with that kind of killing. Civilians who die, maybe they're not intentionally targeted, but you're using weapons in such a way, such as cluster munitions or landmines or weapons of mass destruction that will inevitably kill civilians. So it's, it, it has been part of this uh, idea of putting 
much more strict moral limits on how we conduct war once it's underway. And there has been a bit of a revolution since the Second World War in paying more attention to this. Uh, modern militaries do try and pay attention to the way they're targeting their munitions with guided bombs and things like that. Now, Moyne's idea is that this has sanitized war in such a way that it made it more acceptable to people that unrestrained warfare would shock the conscience and we'd be more likely to abolish war if, if it weren't as, as he says, clean as it is now. I have my doubts mainly because the indiscriminate warfare of World War II, for example, where 60 million people died, two thirds of them almost civilians, you know, the obliteration of whole cities, that didn't turn people against war. It wasn't like we suddenly said, oh my gosh, we can't fight wars anymore. And even though we have more precise munitions, I don't think the data indicates that fewer civilians are dying. I think even though if even if the munitions are accurate, sometimes they're they hit the wrong target, like the last drone strike before we left Afghanistan killed 13 people. Oh, by the way, it was the wrong people. And the, the big thing with, with a lot of these munitions is even if the initial strike doesn't kill civilians, the damage to infrastructure that they carry out, water systems, healthcare systems, electrical grids, you have a lot of civilians dying in the years after war from cholera, you know, diseases that can be treated, malnutrition, unexploded munitions, and the, the toxic chemicals left behind. So I think war today kills as many civilians as it always has as a percentage. The real thing is that Americans don't see it the same way. So I think the real change is with modern weapon systems that the United States uses is that it has become riskless in many ways, that we can kill the enemy without them being able to kill us because we can use drones and radar and distance munitions. And so you you have not that many U.S. casualties. I mean, the, the Afghanistan war was our longest war in American history. Two, 3,000 American soldiers were killed, which is a tragedy for them and their families. But that's one day of battle in a, in a war in the past, right? You know, that's one hour of Normandy. <laughs> so the fact that the U.S. can kill combatants and non-combatants in parts of the world without really exposing our soldiers to much risk and without the U.S. really seeing what's happening. I think that's the main thing that's allowing these forever wars to continue is if they don't touch the average American. They don't necessarily have family in the military. If they do, they're, they're not likely as likely to come home dead as they were in Vietnam or earlier wars. And they don't really see the destruction that drones rain down on you know, villages on the other side of the world. So I think it's not that wars become cleaner. It's just become more distant from our consciousness. That's, that's my take. I think part of what he's saying, too, is that uh, since the wars are not, or military action is not as visible, then those military actions are not as likely to be opposed in mass by uh, Americans, like in Vietnam uh, and, and Iraq. You know, that just doesn't happen. So it continues without resistance by Americans. Right, right. And you have these wars that are never won or never lost. They're just kind of constantly going on, uh, a state of yeah. constant low-level warfare, but outside of our consciousness. Yeah. You also make the point in July to 2021 in an article uh, from the organization Waging Nonviolence, you make that point that the Russian Revolution actually owes its success to nonviolent resistance. Uh, you say this, despite conventional wisdom, Russians relied principally on a sophisticated and diverse array of nonviolent methods to end centuries of czarist rule that began in 2017. Would you expand on your thoughts why the revolution, the Russian revolution, owes its success to nonviolence resistance? 
Yeah, sure. I had a lot of fun uh, researching and writing that article because it's a really an interesting part of history, not just of Russian and European history, but of, of nonviolence. And kind of the, the reason I wanted to look at it is there's a lot of studies that are, are very important that have come out showing why nonviolence is more effective than violence. If you want to resist oppression, overthrow a dictator, stop a foreign occupation, those kinds of things. Uh, and that depends upon classing certain movements as either violent or nonviolent and then comparing the results, which, which is more effective. But I, it struck me that some things that we tend to count as violent revolutions might owe their success to nonviolence because a lot of movements have both, as you know, some violent elements and nonviolent elements. So when I started taking a closer look at the Russian Revolution, which many people, including my students today, say is an example of, of, of a violent revolution that worked. It was a violent uprising that overthrew the Tsar. But when you look at it, really, it wasn't particularly violent at all. The aftermath was intensely violent once Lenin and the Bolsheviks gained power. But the, as a revolution unfolded over 1917, from February through November, it really was a remarkable array of nonviolent techniques that, that we take for granted today or that we really focus on today. It started when um, women workers in St. Petersburg walked off the job on International Women's Day and went throughout the city telling the men to leave the factories too. So there was waves of strikes that shut down major cities. You had troops refusing to fire on demonstrators when ordered to do so by the czar and his, his officials. So security force defection, which is a key dynamic of nonviolent resistance when the regime's security forces refuse to carry out violence against demonstrators. That happened multiple times across the year in 1917, all the way up until October, November. The peasants in the countryside, it was really remarkable. They just basically stopped paying their rents to landlords. And if there were fields that they weren't allowed to farm, they just went and farmed them. And if there were woods they were not allowed by the nobles to hunt in, they just started hunting in them. And there's nothing the nobles could do about it. They just pretended like none of the rules that had kept them in a feudal position existed. So that's nonviolent resistance. You just stop cooperating with the regime and you create change by simply doing it. So it was kind of fun. I, I sort of followed the history of the Russian Revolution, which is really interesting history, across the year and showed how really there was some sporadic fighting here and there, but in, in an almost comical episode during the October Revolution, when the Bolsheviks were trying to seize power, Lenin was actually disappointed that there wasn't more violence because he was kind of committed to this idea of violent revolution as a Marxist. But the fact that power was disintegrating nonviolently and strikers when people were just sort of taking up power on their own, he was actually disappointed, which is why when he wrote the history, he overemphasized the role of violence because it was part of his, his doctrine of you need a violent revolution to overthrow the bourgeoisie. After the revolution, there was the civil war, which was intensely violent. Lots of people killed, lots of terrible brutality. But the actual revolution from February to November 1917 was remarkably nonviolent. It used many of the tools that we see being used around the world today to change, change regimes. Sounds a lot like the American Revolution. Charles Betty and others point out that actually the revolution was about over before the first shot was fired. In exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And the, the Americans really never won any battlefield victories until the very end, perhaps. But yeah, yeah it was parallel government, um, just people ignoring the British and just starting to govern themselves. That, yeah, nonviolence really had as much or more of an effect than, than Washington's army. Definitely. Yeah, that's right. That's Something right. I never learned in my U.S. history courses. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. So let's talk about the Irish Revolution. Mm -hmm. Dr. David, uh, since January 2019, you called attention to the Irish revolutions and the fact that they 
overlooked history of nonviolent resistance. You say, quote, the founding of the Ireland's parliament 100 years ago played a crucial role in the Irish Revolution and the emergence of civil resistance over the last century. So please explain for us how the Ireland's, how Ireland's parliament played such a crucial role in the Irish Revolution and what examples of civil resistance has the Irish Revolution played over the last century? Yeah, thanks. That's, that's the article that got me interested in this idea of violent revolutions actually having a nonviolent content or nonviolent heart. Uh, so because I do some Irish studies, I knew a little bit more about the Irish Revolution. So I started playing with these ideas. And that's what I eventually used to move on to the Russian Revolution. But the the Irish one is really interesting because it, it was a violent revolution. There was armed resistance to British rule that had been building in Ireland for some time. But parallel to that, there was also nonviolent methods of strikes. The word boycott that we use today all the time actually came from the Irish experience where a a British land agent named Captain Charles Boycott was collecting rents for the landlords and the peasants shunned him. They would have nothing to do with him. They ignored him. They boycotted him. So the the very word boycott that we use for nonviolent resistance actually comes from Irish resistance to British uh, colonial rule. And then as we move up into the 20th century, you have armed uprisings like the Easter Rising against the British. But at the same time, you have strikes. And what I really pay attention to, this idea of parallel government. So when the Irish got the right to vote, they would vote and send representatives to the British Parliament in London. But in 1919, Sinn Féin, a political organization which was influenced by other nonviolent movements and actually had an influence on Gandhi, who sort of modeled some of his on them, they basically said, what if we ignored the British and just started ruling ourselves? So they entered Sinn Féin candidates in the 1919 election. They did very well. But instead of traveling to London to join the British Parliament, they all traveled to Dublin and set up their own parliament. So they used the British electoral system against them to create a new parliament, the Dáil, which is still sits in Dublin today. Uh, and so they just started passing laws. The British outlawed them as a terrorist organization, drove them underground, but they started passing laws. They appointed governors. They set up a court system. So Ireland had this entire parallel government that started ruling just next to the British system. And as loyalty shifted away from the British and to, to these new political institutions, the British found they simply couldn't control Ireland anymore. They couldn't collect taxes. They couldn't do anything. So I argue that it was this as much as the violent resistance by the Irish Republican Army that made Ireland ungovernable. The British simply couldn't couldn't govern Ireland anymore because of non-cooperation techniques. Um, And so while history counts the Irish Revolution as violent because there was violence, in fact, kind of like you mentioned with the American Revolution, it was really the non-violent, non-cooperation techniques that, that had the biggest impact on driving the British out. So was it the British who actually uh, in, in, uh, engaged the uh, the violence in, in Ireland, which is like the British did in the United States? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so they ruled through, uh, through coercive power, you know, the Royal Irish Constabulatory, the police force. There were um, Irish freedom fighters who did carry out bombings and assassinations. So it, it became a, a cycle of violence on both sides. Yes. But it was the nonviolence that really helped convince the British they simply could not, they couldn't afford to try and govern Ireland anymore, at least the 26 counties that are now the Republic of Ireland. So Catholic politics and public policy beyond left and right with Clark uh, Cochran, Orbis Books, 2013, was co-authored by you with Clark E. Cochran, 
So I'm assuming there is a connection between these authors. What would that connection be What brought about your cooperation in this right? Sure. Well, yeah, you're right. There is a connection. Uh, we're father and son. He's my father and I'm the son. And he is a retired uh, politics professor as well. He taught for many, many years at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas for uh, moving into healthcare. Uh, his main area was healthcare. So he started working at a hospital and now is retired. But yeah, back in 2003, we collaborated on a book that tried to look at the, the Catholic Church is kind of unique in the sense that it has lots of policy proposals. It takes very specific policy positions on a whole range of issues. And so we tried to kind of summarize what those were for just general readers, especially Catholic readers who want to know more about sort of what the church says about a whole range of policy issues. So it was kind of a, a textbook for introducing the Catholic Church's official political positions on a whole range of issues that we uh, were able to publish with Orbis. Which of those issues would you say have changed and, and in, in what way? Yeah, so it's been um, you know 17 years since we, we wrote that book. And un, I mean, unfortunately, some of them are still there. So the, the basic idea that every single American should have affordable health care coverage, that is unchanged. And we've maybe made some, pro- we certainly I think it made some progress, but not enough. Immigration is one of those things where it's certainly more pressing today than it was when we wrote the book. Um, obviously, we addressed immigration. The church has always been supportive of the rights of immigrants and the right to migrate. It's, it's an immigrant church. But there's certainly been a lot more xenophobia and scaremongering around immigration since we wrote the book. And actually, I think the biggest blind spot, I'd say, sort of not knowing what was coming, aside from public health and and pandemics and things, was just the basic mechanisms of democracy. We kind of, the church, Catholic church, the modern Catholic church endorses democratic institutions, the ability to to vote easily, accessible ballot, representative government, uh, these kinds of things. So we kind of took for granted in 2003, even after the Bush v. Gore fight, that the basic integrity of our democratic institutions were fairly solid, even if there were problems. But yeah, we've seen with polarization and a really aggressive campaign to try and make it harder to vote for certain groups, especially African-Americans and young people. And then the the conspiracy theories around the 2020 election. So if I could go back and add a chapter, it would be on the basic democratic rights, the right to vote, access to the ballot, representative government, the threats of gerrymandering and voter suppression, things like that. Those, I wish I didn't have to, but if I could, I would would go back and add that chapter. Maybe an addendum, huh? Right. Uh, Let's spend a a bit more time with racial and and ethnic subjects. Here's a quote from uh, and a reviewer of your book, The Color of Freedom, Race and Contemporary American Liberalism. The reviewer is Kobe Kwasi Harris, an African-American philosopher whose work is focused on racial matters, and he's from San Jose State University. This is one of his quotes. The author attempt to, that's you, <laughs> attempts to find a solution for the persistence of white supremacy and racial domination in our liberal society without discording the the core liberal values. In this regard, this is a unique perspective because either the black victims of liberalism can for reject, call for rejection, or if it's uh, presuppositions, or white advocates of liberalism attribute black failure to their pathological behavior patterns. I believe this work is the first attempt to expand the liberal paradigm to include racial justice as a core principle. How do you respond to uh, Kobe Kasi and uh, on his thoughts uh, about your attempts to find the solution for the persistence of white supremacy? 
What's your solution? Yeah, well, I appreciate you asking me about it. That was my first book. And so um, it's been a while since I went back and kind of looked at some of the stuff. And yeah, my basic idea was to, and I wrote this in grad school. It was my dissertation that then became a book. And so my idea, I was studying liberalism, which in the broader philosophical sense, not necessarily the way we sometimes use liberal or conservative in this country, but this broad family of, of ideas centered on human equality and, and dignity and um, liberty, rule of law, limited government, these kinds of things, uh, things that many progressives and conservatives sort of share, but different interpretations of it. So I was trying to explore the way it had failed to deal with the reality of, of race in the United States and maybe ways it could better do so. And so I, I kind of criticized what I called colorblind liberalism, which basically said, well, we just need to treat everyone equally as individuals, and then it'll all be okay. And I think I picked up on a critique of liberalism that in its focus on the individual and on the rule of law and liberty, it tends to be blind to the importance of cultural practices, traditions, identities, uh, these kinds of things. This critique has become more widespread, I think, since I wrote the book, not because not because of my book, but just the, the general change in the culture and the um, ideas. So I tried to sort of make room within liberal political philosophy for more attention to how racial identity shapes people, their uh, life journey, including institutions and civil society. I, I spent a lot of time looking at the Black church and how it shapes in Black culture over, over time. So it's kind of a semi-philosophical, graduate school-y kind of idea, and then somewhat with applications to contemporary American culture. And you're talking philosophical liberalism, different from neoliberalism, though, right? Yeah, definitely. So neoliberalism kind of refers to especially laissez-faire economics, this idea of free trade and, um, you know, free contracts and things. That was um, kind of the idea of liberalism more generally as the rule of law and looking at individual equality and um, liberty. So neoliberalism is definitely part of that really broad family of liberalism. Okay. So let's talk about reparations a little little further here. So it's a hot topic, much discussed in media, schools, churches, street corners. Stephen S. Rogers, Harvard Business School, has studied racial wealth disparity in the United States and provides some practical solutions for us to consider. Investing in Black-owned banks, frequenting Black-owned businesses, and donating to Black universities and colleges. Eliminating the $153,000 wealth gap between Black and whites, that would essentially eliminate 75% of our racial problems, says Rogers. What might the Catholic Church do to address the issues of wealth disparity in the United States? Yeah, I think there's a couple things. So the Catholic Church, while very racially diverse today and and historically, really was built as a white immigrant church. Immigrants who came to the United States and sort of gradually, in some cases, joined sort of the broad white America, often at the expense of African-Americans, non-white Americans. So the church, I think, does need to face up to its own complicitness in, in slavery, certainly. Catholics own slaves. Some Catholic bishops own slaves. Uh, Catholic institutions own slaves, but that also, of course, in Jim Crow and segregation. So the church has has its own history of 
not just failing to address racial justice, but actually contributing to racial injustice. So atoning for that, facing up to that, accepting the reality that the church itself is becoming much more diverse. Half of More than half of all Catholics under the age of 40 are either Black or, or Latinx. Um, so we've got a very diverse group coming up. The center of the church is shifting from white ethnics in the Midwest and North, Northeast to the Southwest, especially Hispanic Catholics. So fessing up to that or atoning for that. And of course, reparations is a um, politically charged term in our politics, but it shouldn't be for Christians. I mean, reparation is, and, and penance is a part of the Christian tradition. So I'm always kind of shocked when Catholics who are big on going to confession and, and atonement get all uh, tense when it comes to reparations. Um, that's kind of part of, of a religious tradition is repairing, making rights, restoring balance. So the church itself um, obviously can direct more of its resources, I would hope, into disadvantaged communities. But the biggest thing they can do, I think, is support public policies that can help address those gaps that you mentioned. For me, the biggest is the, the wealth gap. So there's an enormous gap in wealth between white and black Americans, for example. And a lot of that has to do with the way the government, an activist government, created the white middle class in the middle of the 20th century through explicit government policies, especially housing policy, where a lot of white families today owe their wealth to the housing market of the last 100 years that really was opened up to white Americans in a way that was closed to black Americans. They were white. Amer the government built an escalator for white Americans and it was denied to black Americans. And so I think knowing that that's the case, um, a great book by Richard Rothstein, The Color of Law, kind of details how the government subsidized white home ownership, essentially covering a lot of the costs for white people to own homes. Those homes appreciated a tremendous amount and didn't do so for Black Americans. So he proposes something as simple as, you know, the numbers won't be exactly the same, but if the government allowed, helped a white family in 1950 buy a home for $80,000, that is now worth, or probably buy a home for $50,000 that's now worth $350,000, that the government should now subsidize for African-American homeowners the same percentage. So we'll sell you a, a $350,000 home for $80,000, which is essentially what the government did for white homeowners in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. We're going to basically give you a house for half its price, and we'll take care of the other half. I think There's no reason Rogers, we can't create a black middle class the same way the government created a white. I think what Rogers is implying, too, is that if, if whites put their money in black banks, the banks have, those black banks have more money to loan to blacks so mm -hmm. they can then uh, own our own homes. So that, that's, that's a personal kind of uh, investment that, that whites and anybody can, can make. In the black right. community, same for black-owned businesses. If you buy from a black-owned business, they have more money to to uh, expand their business or have more products for their community. And then, of course, black universities have, which is uh, yeah. another. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Professor, we're coming to the end of our program, and uh, want to give you a, a last word. Uh, what are some other thoughts that you'd like to leave with our audience, and, and uh, how might how might will they con contact you? Well, let me just start by saying thank you. I really like talking to you guys. And it was, uh, yeah, it was great. I love talking about this stuff and, and hearing ideas. And so I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm at Loris College, which is in Dubuque, Iowa. And I'll give you my uh, email if anyone wants to email me. It's david, D-A-V-I-D dot Cochran, C-O-C-H-R-A-N at Loris, L-O-R-A-S dot E-D-U. 
And uh, we've kind of covered all my, my major areas of interest, stuff I like to talk about. So maybe I'll just end by, by thanking your listeners for the work that they're doing. And a lot of my students often ask, well, how do you keep hope when things don't seem to get better? And part of what I think justice work is about is maybe prohibiting things from getting worse. So even if it doesn't seem like things get better, I think an awful lot of people doing an awful lot of peace and justice work out there at least hold the line on things not getting a lot worse. So I just want to thank your listeners for all the work that they're doing and you too as well. Well, Thank you. It's been a revelation to us too. And in the last three years, Jim, we've had over 175 interviews of folks who have the same interests as we and you. Uh, So that's been a real revelation for us and a real, uh, it's it's been an accomplishment, but it's been, uh, it's been good for us to know. Um, Yeah, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So folks, we are out of time. We want to thank our guest, Dr. David Cochran, for his participation and his thoughtful answers. We, We also want to thank our listeners for joining us, Solutions to Violence. Solutions to Violence airs on Mondays at 5 p.m., Tuesdays at 8 a.m., and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. Today's program will be repeated on October 19th and 20th. The Solutions to Violence program featuring Dr. David Cochran will be placed in our archives October 20th. To listen via our archives, visit us at boldradio.org, scroll down to Program Archives, and then scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features David Cochran's second interview. If you'd like to share your thoughts about our discussion with David Cochran, you can reach us at the following email address, solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. I'm Jump Johnson, here with Jamie McMillan, our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Until next time, please keep the peace in your own personal way and help others do the same. Thanks for listening.